Welcome to NBC. It's good to see everybody again. Good to be back with you this week. Um, I just want to say, every, the line of that song that always gets me is that you have no rival, you have no equal. That, that's the line of that song that I just go, man, when, when you're a songwriter and you put that in there, you can just feel the spiritual power in that, I can, in that line where you just think about how amazing and powerful our, our mighty God is. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we wrap up the the series. Um, I thought I might start with a with a Halloween joke, though, if that's okay. I, I'm not a big joke teller, but 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 I, I I think I have one for you today. Is that okay? All right. All right. Okay. Bear with me here. All right. So, what creature has 50 arms and sits on the couch in October? The Dodgers. Anyways, <laughs> we'd like to... Uh, we would like to welcome all the Dodger fans here to New Vintage Church. Um, uh, lock the doors, don't let them out. Um, but it would be, I would be remiss to not, uh, not say something about that and, and maybe use that as a little bit of a, a launch point for today. I've had a really good couple of weeks. I mean, really good. Um, not just the Padres. My, my, my daughter is getting admitted to colleges and and, and, and San Pasquale, her high school, is winning the homecoming football game. Coach Corley's coaching the team, and Scotty's coaching the team, and Ricky Rodriguez is coaching the team. I mean, awesome, you know. My daughter and her boyfriend, Billy Cool, goes here, too. They get homecoming king and queen at San Pasquale. I mean, I'm having a good dad week, right? And then, and then, I mean, the Friars, my goodness. I, 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 I mean, they're exhausting, man, to watch. And they're, they're flirting with death right now. But, 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 that, that weekend was magical. And I found myself going, man, in two weeks' time, it was my birthday weekend too. It was like, it was like God put a bow on that thing and said, you know what, son, you've been suffering for years. Here you go. You've endured to the end, so I will, I will send you some life. And, we, and I had my wife right by me, and the rain's pouring, and everybody's screaming. I mean, it was amazing. It was, a, it was the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life other than uh, my baptism, uh, my wedding, maybe the birth of my kids. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but something in there, it was unbelievable. And then I thought to myself, I go, all right, now two week, the two weeks before that were horrible. They were atrocious. Uh, and I found myself going, how does a person go from the two weeks like I just had where it's like, oh, man, God is smiling on me, man. Take me to Vegas. I'll win it all. Feel like God's got his hand on me. He, he's blessing everybody around me. It must be me. <laughs> and then on the other side, the two weeks before, you're almost like, everybody get away from me because it's like everything seems wrong seems to be happening to me. Uh, you know, it, it, the same goes on in families, right? Your family's on a roll. You're you're kind of just on a string of winning, and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, something happens, and then boom, something else, and then boom, and then you feel like the snowball is going in the wrong way, or you're standing at the bottom of the hill, and here it comes, and then you take it to the church level, same thing, ups and downs, man, that was great, oh, what it, we just saw the hand of God move, and then it's like, no. you know, you're like, what, what is going on? Okay, I want to I talk about that. Is the presence and power of God something that comes and goes? 
Can we read it like a fortune? Like going, okay, hey, I'm on a roll, so God must be with me. Hey, I had some setbacks, so maybe he's not anymore. Did I do something to make God upset? Because when you're looking at the kingdom of God, like we've been in this series, we're looking at at how God moves in, in this cosmic movement from the garden, relationship with God is fractured, to the restoration that it finds in Christ, and then ending up in this great city of God down the road. There's all sorts of mind games that the evil one plays. And I think it's heartbreaking to God when our sense of whether he's for us or against us goes up and down, up and down, up and down, as our circumstances go up and down, up and down, up and down, even though we can read our Bibles and we know that characters like, say, Joseph or Job or others uh, that have uh, wild rides. Job is having a, a great, I mean, he has the ideal life and he's living a blameless life and so he has no reason to complain. Hey, you know what, I'm, everybody's doing the right thing and I'm reaping the benefits of it. Joseph, same thing, but then Joseph, his goes up and down, up and down, up and down, uh, and, but he has to stay faithful and steady as he goes through some serious ups and downs, but he doesn't lose sight or faith in the fact that God is fundamentally faithful and for him. I have a parable and a prophet for us this morning as we wrap up this series with this simple idea. It is finished. What's finished? It's, it's the restoration of relationship to God that's broken in the Garden of Eden. It's finished with the person and work of Jesus and that that puts into motion a story that can't be stopped. That when that happens, now, now there'll be along the way, uh, you know, the, the, the details and stuff like that may move around in ways we don't expect, but the beginning and the ending can't be changed. When Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the grave, ascends to heaven you know, to sit at the right hand of God, okay, that begins... It's almost like a film where, you know, you, 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 the play is hit and nobody knows where the remote is. It's just going to keep going until it's over. Now, uh, when he declares, Jesus, that we're the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, we need to remember that if the gates aren't prevailing against us, we're supposed to be on the offense. Gates don't charge anybody. They guard things. They stay put. I've never had a gate chase me. Uh, I've never done anything like that. They just stand there. And they keep you from being able to charge in. But the posture there is supposed to be one of uh, active pursuit, of moving forward, of pushing the line forward. But that's hard to do if you either, A, lose the power and presence of God in your midst, or you don't believe God is with you. In which case, you might be wise not to proceed. But Jesus, when he gives that description of the church as the one against which the gates of hell will not prevail, we need to remember by faith that what the scriptures say about Jesus is true, that what what he closes cannot be opened and what he opens can't be closed, that what he declares to be will be. And so what God began in a garden, he will begin, he will bring to fruition in the heavenly city. In the meantime, we are working our way there, inching along, advancing like we're supposed to. Jesus, the master teacher, walks the earth, uh, mostly among agricultural people, telling a lot of stories. And he tells a lot of them from the garden. And uh, we don't 
maybe find as much power in them as, uh, or everyday kind of tangibility to them as they did because it's not necessarily our, word, our world. Some of us are farmers. Some of us grow our own food. Uh, and that's great, but for a lot of us, we don't. And so we don't, we lose track of the process by which it goes from the soil in, onto your dining room table at dinner time. But we need to know how it gets on the table. Same with the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, we're not here to consume what has been planted and grown and harvested. We are the planters. We are the farmers. We are the gardeners. And yes, we get to enjoy some of the fruits of our, of our labors, but fundamentally, we're the ones that are doing the sowing and the watering. And it's God that's bringing the increase along. Those stories that Jesus would tell to people were so life-changing, it caused people to follow him, to change their minds, change their lives, change their behaviors, to align with God's vision for the world, beginning with them. And we're going to look at one here in Mark chapter 4 that isn't really talked about a lot, but I think it's, it's, it's one of the most important. Uh, here's what Jesus says to people. He goes, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stock, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. It's short and sweet, but it says he doesn't know how it happens. He plants and he goes to bed. He wakes up and it's grown. And it says that whether he gets up or not, whether he gets out of bed or not, it still keeps growing automate in Greek, automatically. So we may, you know, we may... Uh, uh, we may plant, but God gives the increase. God is like the sun, if you will, in the spiritual realm. He photosynthesizes what it is that gets scattered. He's the one that ultimately makes it happen and makes it grow. He doesn't need us to grow the kingdom. He can do it in our sleep. Now, we may plant, but he gives the increase. We may not know how, but he does. And he chooses to use us, not because he has to have us, but he invites us into the process. Just like it's he who sends the rain on the crops. We plant the crops, he sends the rain. He sends the sun. He sends the things that make it actually grow. Otherwise, it would be like me throwing a handful of seed on the stage. There are circumstances and things that make things grow. And in the spiritual realm, the key ingredient is the power and the presence of God. And without it, you can't get anything to grow. You can try. I mean, you can throw seed in every direction you can think of. Uh, you can try to, to, to jackhammer a field and like pull, go under the concrete and turn it into something that can be uh, planted in, but it won't work. In the spiritual realm, it is God. The miraculous, supernatural power and presence of God that makes things grow. And he's always at work in ways that we can't see. The image that always comes to my mind, sticking with uh, agriculture, are wildflowers. You ever want to you ever drive down the freeway and it's like, you know, you see a bunch of trash bags and tents and, and then right there in the middle there's wildflowers everywhere. Like, how do those things get there? Like, did some guy just walk around and plant? I mean, did somebody dig a thing? I mean, how did that happen? Or you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you're out in the middle of the desert or something. And all of a sudden, wildflowers. 
We don't really know how they got there, but they're there, right? It's just like people who come to church here. It's like I, I meet them in the lobby afterwards or whatever, and, and I'm like, how'd they get here? They're like wildflowers of the kingdom. It's like, how did they, how'd they find us? How did God direct them here? Or you watch some people who you would think, this is as a pastor, you look at some people and you go, boy, they really seem to have the in, intrinsic gifts of, say, a leader or a great servant in the kingdom of God, but they never really get traction or whatever. And then you find somebody who on the surface has none of that, but they end up becoming this fantastic, amazing leader. And you find yourself standing back going, how did he do that? Because it is God that, that gives the increase. He's the one that photosynthesizes it. The person who's, who accesses, who submits to the Holy Spirit of God is the one in which the growth takes place. There's a reason it's called fruit of the Spirit. Because it's of the Spirit. <laughs> and so in all of our desires for spiritual growth, yes, I think, I think spiritual disciplines are vitally important. But what gives life to those is the Holy Spirit. The one that gives you the discipline to continue to engage the disciplines is the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit becomes the one that when the church prays, gives it boldness, gives it hope, gives it what it needs, and provides. Now this, this parable adds to it that the kingdom of God seems to be fairly gradual. And inevitable. I mean, you do have some examples. You have Pentecost and some other places where you see these big kabooms. But, but you also see contractions that happen really quickly. Like when everybody ditches Jesus because he preaches a sermon they don't like. Then they take off. And it's down back to the apostles again. Or at the end where Jesus is left with basically his, his mom and a couple of other people. That's it. That's, those are the only ones with him at the moment. Okay? You have that. But that's not the norm. The norm in Scripture is like a crop. It takes time. It grows slowly, but inevitably. First the kernel, then the stock, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And I think probably part of the reason that Jesus tells this parable to them, it's, it's right on the heels of the mustard seed parable. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And it doesn't look very impressive, but... We just wait till it grows. He's saying, don't mistake, in the mustard seed parable, he's saying, don't mistake a sapling for a weak tree. This is a parable that says, don't mistake what appears to be slow to you for something that isn't really going to happen. It will happen because I say it's going to happen, Jesus says. And when I say it, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Just because it doesn't grow fast doesn't mean it isn't growing or it isn't growing strong. So we often try to rush the spiritual growth process, but spiritual growth isn't something that we acquire. It's something God grows gradually in us and in others. Just because what God has been doing is put in motion, though, doesn't mean we don't have a role to play. But not because he needs us, he invites us. So if you're sitting out there and you're going, hey, I've been trying this thing for a while, which for us, a while means usually two, three weeks. That's, a, that's, that's, that's what a while is like. It's like diets or working out. You know, and, and, and so we don't see results like we want, then everybody gets very impatient and thinks, ah, it didn't work or whatever, okay? This parable is for you. To say following Jesus is a lifetime endeavor. It is not a diet plan. It's not a vitamin you take. It's who you are. 
Heart, mind, soul, strength, everything. The kingdom of God is, for, is, is that. It's the kingdom, it's, it's God working in those kinds of people, people who have that heart. Heart, mind, soul, strength, Jesus. That's where my heart is. That's where my mind is. That's where I want my acts of service to go. Everything that I do in this life is oriented toward following Jesus on a daily basis. And so I want to maybe take a shift from that to now, okay, so the world around us in this uh, journey to the great city of God. This is a scary time to be a Christian in some ways. It uh, feels like culture is really pounding us good. They tell all the negative stories, never the positive. Uh, on every front, it feels like we're getting lambasted with things that are critical. Um, we're watching uh, people disappoint us. Uh, Christians disappoint us. Our fellow Christians disappoint us. Watch our leaders disappoint us. Political leaders disappoint us. The headwinds, if you're really trying to do Christianity the right way, are pretty strong right now. So I want to turn now to a prophet. Uh, his name's Elisha. And this guy's the super prophet. He doesn't get as much run as his, uh, the guy with the similar name, Elijah. This is Elisha. He's, Elisha is Elijah's successor. Um, but I want to start with this kind of simple point. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, remember this. That if you have God on your side, you cannot be defeated. And he is fighting for you. You know, when I, when I sit down and I watch uh, news coverage of a natural disaster, uh, I always, it always impacts me. I, always, I, can, I feel like I can put my, myself in their shoes. I've been through virtually every kind of disaster you can think of firsthand. Earthquakes, of course, are my specialty as a Californian. But if I'm watching an earthquake, uh, coverage of an earthquake that took place in, say, Oklahoma, they do have earthquakes there, uh, I don't run and get under my own table. Uh, I don't, if I see a hurricane that is going on in Florida and the devastation that's there, I don't board up my house. And the reason is, I know that is not going to be able to touch me. Okay? This is a counterintuitive thing, but for a Christian, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is the guarantee of his protection. So when you're looking at the things that are going on around you, instead of, uh, of us shrinking back from the battles... It is a much better, much more godly, much more biblical way to do it, to be, again, be the church against which the gates of hell can't prevail. You walk toward it, not away from it. David and Goliath, one of the great stories of all scripture that, that people miss the details, which are what give that story the magic. Goliath uh, sits there. David first chides Goliath, and he says, hey, Goliath, you know what? Uh, I did this to the lion, did this to the bear, and now I'm going to do this to you. And Goliath says, you know what? I'm going to do this to you. So they're talking trash across the ravine. And then Goliath starts running at David. Now, this dude's over nine feet tall. His coat weighs 125 pounds. This is a big dude. And he's running at David. And you know what it says? David ran at him with a slingshot, a shepherd boy with a slingshot. He runs at him. And I always thought to myself, I go, you know, God, help us be people who run at things, not away from them. That we're not just guards like gates are. We're, we're, we're warriors. We're people who don't shrink back. But when we talk about how God gives us strength and that, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we say all that stuff that that's born out in our lives. 
Uh, people around us see people who are people of great courage, willing to do whatever it takes for the, to see the kingdom advance, willing to do whatever it takes to see the Holy Spirit break out in their lives and the lives of other people. Our man Elisha, man of unusual spiritual power from God. He's the anointed successor of Elijah. And when he's anointed, he asks, God, would you give me double the spiritual power, the spirit you put in Elijah, I would like a double portion of that. And God says, yes. So Elisha is given double the spirit of Elijah. Now remember, Elijah is no joke. Elijah can pray and the rain stops for years. He's the guy that can call fire down from heaven. He's the, you know, the prophets of Baal, all those stories like that. I mean, Elijah was no joke. So you sit there and you go, he's, got, he's double that. That's pretty incredible. In 2 Kings um, chapter 13, you read that he's such a spirit-filled prophet that after he's gone, his bones, after Elisha's dead, his bones hit the bones of another dead guy. And it brings this guy back to life. I mean, you're t that's pretty good. That's a good trick. I mean, when you're dead and you can raise people from the dead when you're dead, that's a whole other level of awesome, especially in the Old Testament. You're like, that's impressive. That's how full of God's spirit Elisha was. So, 2 Kings chapter 6, and this is a story, by the way, that I would, call to, I would commit this story in general to memory because it will bless you untold amounts of times. It does me. Israel's at war against Syria, and they are absolutely whooping Syria because Elisha keeps tipping off the king of Israel about what Syria is going to do. It's like having your own oracle. And so Elisha goes, hey, king, um, they're going to go around the back flank tomorrow around noon. Uh, they've got 1,000 troops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, he knows it before the, the Syrians even do. So, so the king of Israel plans for it. The Syrians get defeated. And the king of Syria is, is a bit tired of this. So he says, what we need to do is take out Elisha. If we take him out, then we can win this pretty easily. Elisha's, uh, so he sends his uh, armies overnight. Elisha goes to bed. And uh, during the night, the king of Syria surrounds Elisha's tent with armies. Kind of surrounds him, figures he's going to need adequate forces to do this. In the morning comes, Elisha's servant goes out, I guess, I don't know, to get the newspaper or something. He goes out, opens up his tent flap. Uh-oh, he thinks, this isn't good. So he closes the tent flap and he goes back in and begins the process of freaking out, which is what most people would do. I'm going to read this to you from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Now, at this point, I'm going to pause in the story and think, his servant apparently doesn't see anything at all. He looks around and he says, no, I see a lot of people dressed in Syrian jerseys here, but I don't see any on our team. So Elisha prays, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opens the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And as the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, Lord, 
Please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, so they're all blind now. The Syrian army is completely blind. Chariots of fire are all behind them. Elisha goes out to the Syrian army, and he says, "Uh, you've come the wrong way. Now, this is not the right city. Follow me, and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. So he takes them, leads them into Israel, right to the doorstep of the king in Samaria. And as soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So now the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. So now they're in the middle of Israel, (laughs) surrounded by Israel. Now, what I want to call your attention to are a few things. There's a theme here, if you read through the story, of eyes being opened and shut, right? right? Elisha's servant goes out, he sees this, but he doesn't really see. So Elisha prays that his eyes will be opened. They are. Here comes this, the, the Syrian army. Hey, shut their eyes. They're shut. He leads them into Israel, basically, to, to get them militarily taken care of. And uh, then he says, hey, now open their eyes. So the theme here is that God and only God seems to be able to open and close eyes. Your ability to see or not see. And I don't mean see. There's degrees of seeing, right? Elisha's servant only sees one dimensionally. He only sees what's right in front of him, what his eyes tell him. But Elisha is seeing a completely different scene because he's seeing the way that God sees things. He can see the armies of God surrounding the Syrian army on the backside. So he's not afraid. He knows that when the time is right, God is going to keep him safe. So he doesn't panic. He doesn't panic. But without God, there can be no sight. When it comes to being able to see the battle and to be able to see who is fighting for us, the sight comes from God. We're utterly dependent on God for our sight. Sometimes our eyes can be the biggest enemy when it comes to living life because I come to think that my own vision is just reality, when in reality, if I were to, to take the time to pray and open myself up to the Spirit of God and ask for God to open my eyes, I might see things in a very different way. You guys have probably had that experience. You encounter a person, you have a bad encounter with somebody, you go away, and you're like, you know what, Lord, I need more patience. Help me have the patience to deal with this person. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you got patience. And all of a sudden, now you see them a little differently than you did before. What would the change? Are they different? No, you're different. Your eyes were opened. You're starting to see the person the way that Jesus sees them. It's not that they changed. They may continue to be a, a tremendous jerk or knucklehead or whatever word you want to use for them. But when you're able to see what God sees, okay, then you, you're, you're going to be victorious in whatever battle it is that you're facing. And what God tries to help Elisha and Elisha's servants see is like, look, I know you've got battles. I know there are people attacking you, but don't worry. I've got your back. I've got you behind. I'm, I'm circling them. So open your eyes and see. It's a little bit like in John 4 when Jesus goes to Samaria and encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he goes there and the apostles don't even want to go through the town. They want to get out of there as fast as they can. And Jesus just wants to linger. He seems to want to talk to everybody. In fact, and they love Jesus. The village is, is converted. They all invite Jesus to stay with them. 
for a few days. And so he does that. And they go, hey, can we get out of here, basically? And Jesus goes, hey, wait, look. Look out. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. The harvest? They're probably going, what harvest? I see a bunch of spiritual mongrels. Idolaters. But he doesn't see it. See, because Jesus has that different vision that really only God provides. And we have to deal with it. I mean, there are a lot of counterfeits, counterfeit versions of Christianity going around that focus on just you, all that matters is what God does in your life. There's nothing bigger than you um, that... If you're going, if, that if you want to become a Christian, then, then basically that's real easy and God needs to explain himself to you before you can accept him. These kinds of things. Reminds me of this dude right here, Mark Landis. 30 years, this cat, he looks a little mischievous, really, if you look at him, but he is the greatest art forger in the history of the world. Fooled 45 of the best museums in the world with his forgeries. And in many cases, he was able to do it with Crayola markers and frames from Walmart. I kid you not. So he goes through, and I mean, he does this dozens and dozens and dozens of times. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of art history, so any question they asked him, he could do it. He would dress up. This is a disguise. He would dress as a friar to be able to, uh, and a priest, so they would trust him more. And he would go in wanting to make a donation. Now, he rarely got paid in return. He did this for the kicks, just because he could. So they would hang his fakes on their wall, right? More than 45 museums couldn't tell the difference between his copies and the original works, and they weren't just... And when they were interviewed about it, they go, it's not just that the works were convincing, he was convincing. I mean, this guy knew everything in the world about art. He had all the right answers. And he promised them that, hey, if you, you know, want to accept this gift, I might have more gifts for you. And I thought, what a beautiful illustration of how Satan works. It's like he shows up. To somebody who feels like something that they, that's impressive and gives it and offers it. And if you'll just take this. It's almost like when he's encountering Jesus. Hey, Jesus. And he takes him up to the roof of the temple. Hey, look at this. Look out over all the kingdoms. The world. I'll give you that if you'll just do this. He's a forger. Uses scripture, by the way. Looks like an original. <laughs> but Jesus can see. He's got the ability to discover that's not the original. That's a fake. That's phony. He's a forger, a cheap one at that. And the only way that this guy gets beat in the world we live in is through people who have good vision, can see things. Uh, they don't are driven by fear. They're driven by kingdom. They're not driven by desires. They're driven by the Holy Spirit. They're not driven by self-interest, but by 
pouring themselves out for others. They embrace the idea that if you want to be the greatest, you become the servant of all. That Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life, even when everybody else says, oh, no, 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 look, here's a whole bunch of ways. They embrace biblical truth instead of just drinking Kool-Aid from every other place. See, God opens eyes, and he's the one that, through this story from Elisha, reminds us that he's fighting for us. So even as he's doing his work automatically, we need to remember Exodus 14, 14, at the banks of the Red Sea, this word from God, God will fight for you. You only need to be silent. You just stop talking. God has, will do this for you. And in Jesus, God has opened our eyes. Jesus himself is God's definitive statement that he is with us. His blood ensures our victory. And so we don't need to go about life trying to figure out, okay, is God with me or not? I mean, think about how many times you may or may not have done something because you didn't know whether God was with you or not. What opportunities did you pass on? What conversations were you too afraid to have? What risks were you unwilling to take? The safest place in the world is with God. Elisha, without the power and presence of God, is a man in a toga. That's all he is. But what makes Elisha so incredible is that he has such uh, an abundant spiritual power to him provided by God that it makes him a person with crystal clear vision, the courage of a thousand lions, and the ability uh, to really change things. Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, caveat. Uh, we do need to make sure God is with us. I know I made it sound like he's always with you no matter what. That's not really the case. When you're walking in rebellion against God, then he's not with you. So he's not a rubber stamp on whatever you decide to do with your life or whatever the church decides to do with whatever. It's about whether, to whether or not we're in step with the Spirit of God. But if he is with us, then no one can stand against us. We are not here to be guards. We're here to be warriors. And in Christ, we are not alone. Jesus is with us always through his people. So when you feel alone, remember those who are with you more than those who are with them. And let's pray that God would open our eyes. So here's what we're going to do now as we gather around the table. I'm gonna, we're going to do this in a different way this morning. Um, we're going to take communion together. But I want to spend our time in prayer praying for spiritual vision. That God would open our eyes and pray that God would supernaturally uh, help us to be courageous in people of vision. And I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you would. Would you stand with me? Um, and we'll pray, and then we'll take, you can take it while you're standing up. I promise. It's biblical. It's fine. Uh, we do have ushers. If you missed it, just put your hand in the air like this if you didn't get the elements, and we'll be happy to bring them to you. We've got a few in the back over there. If you would allow me to, to pray for us as we take the, the elements. Heavenly Father, too often we focus on strategies and methods when we should be focused 
on prayer and worship and word. And Father, for trying to see the world on our own, Father, we, we repent and we ask that you help us to see our lives and our relationships in a very, uh, the way that you would want us to see them. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see the opportunities, the harvest around us. How you want us to play ball on this great field of yours, Lord. How you want us to, to advance the kingdom at our homes, in our schools, in our offices, in our church, in our world, Lord. Father, now as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, who said, look out to his followers. Look out, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Father, we volunteer today to be workers in your harvest field. With bread and cup now, we say yes to Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.